0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan, your co host, with you today on this 20 year anniversary of 9 11. Last month, the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan and left this terrible, terrible mess, which was proof that 9 11 is still producing tragic consequences even two decades later, and that we're still processing that profound pivot in history. What it means. And how it changed us as a nation, changed our politics, our media, the whole atmosphere of our country. Today, I have guest Elliot Ackerman, former Marine and veteran of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, a best-selling novelist and memoirist whose life and career have been defined by the consequences of 9-11 on a very personal and visceral level. Elliot, welcome to Inside the Hive.
1: Thanks for having me, Jeff.
0: You were 21 years old on 9-11. You deployed five times to the Middle East. You fought in the Battle of Fallujah in Iraq. And afterwards, you authored several novels inspired by your experiences, including Green on Blue and Dark at the Crossing. You've sacrificed and seen friends make the ultimate sacrifice in the wars that cascaded out of 9-11. So let's start at the beginning. What was your personal experience of 9-11?
1: Oh, man. I, I remember it like so clearly. And it's sort of funny, like it makes me feel old now, because I do have to remind myself that, you know, anyone who's sort of younger than I am, you know, it's not the same type of clear memory. Actually, you know, a friend of mine made the point, uh, I'm born, like, I'm just straddle being a millennial and being Gen X, depending on the definition that, that you give to the Divide. And so a friend of mine s- said that he, his definition of someone who is a millennial versus someone who is Gen X was whether or not when you recall 9/11 as being an adult memory or a childhood memory. If it's a childhood memory, you're a millennial. If it's an adult memory, you're Gen X. Um, and then I'll, I'll tell you where I was in 9/11. I'll make one point though. I said that once to a uh, to a former Marine who was about six or seven years younger than me, and because uh, he told me that on 9/11 he was in like the eighth grade. And he walked into his parents' bedroom and told them he was going to enlist in the Marine Corps in four years as soon as he could. And he said, well, I guess I'm not a millennial because that's an adult reaction to 9-11 saying I was going to go enlist and join the Marines. But but specific to your question, Joe, you know, I was in in college. And I remember I was in college at Tufts, uh, so up in Boston. I remember running on the Esplanade that morning on the Charles River. I remember like everyone else, like it was a really beautiful day. And I drove up to my first class, which was, you know – somewhere around eight thirty or nine o'clock I parked my car and I was walking into what they called the Hall of Flags, which was this sort of big rotunda, and they drugged T televisions and people everyone was gathered around the televisions. And I said, like, what happened? And um, you know, planes gone into the World Trade Center and there were lots of military fellows at the at the graduate school where I was, because it was a school for international affairs. And then the plane hit the Pentagon and all the military fellows just, like, ran out the doors trying to get on the phone to, to, to get in touch with people they knew at the Pentagon. Um, so that's that's my, like, most acute memory of
0: 9-11. Yeah. Well, it's worth explaining to people who uh, were not adults yet at that time that we don't often think about the things that were happening right beforehand, Mm-hmm. And you know there had been an election, and Bush had won it, and it was controversial. And but the the state of the country yeah. just atmospherically was one of uh, a little bit malaise, right? Yeah. I, I remember it was after the summer, and that summer, the media to kind of like fill in the you know news was it was a shark. There was a shark obsession. Yeah, the August before all this happened. I mean, that's where we were. It was like we had we were still living in a in a uh, you know. We were checked out a little bit. That's partly why this was so shocking. It was such a slap in the face for the whole country.
1: You know, Joe, like I remember and listen, we can all like remember the zeitgeist differently. Um, could I agree with you about that malaise? I think there was also like a really heavy dose of sort of nostalgia in the zeitgeist at that point. Like um, this sense of, you know, who are we as Americans? The I mean, one we've just won the cold, you know, we've won the Cold War. So we were living at that point in the post cold war era. Mm-hmm. and, you know, we were a little bit rudderless. We'd gone through kind of all of the, you know, the, the Clinton fiasco in the late 90s, and mm-hmm. and a couple, like, cultural touchstones for me are one in particular. I think sometimes if you look at, like, what's coming out in Hollywood, that is sometimes, like, a good barometer if you want to remember, like, what the, yeah. what the zeitgeist is craving because, you know, if you work in Hollywood, it's your job is to sort of, like, capture the zeitgeist, understand what people want, and deliver it up to them, and so something that always stuck with me is, the television show Band of Brothers premieres on actually, it would be 20 years ago today, September 9th, 2001. That's when it premiered, which was the Sunday. And like, wow. there was a show about America, you know, America in the Second World War, where the good guys, our purpose, we're so clean. That's what people wanted. Um, and so, like, I always felt like then 9 11 happens and, you know, just the pump was primed for us to go out and kind of enact that type of a narrative on the world stage again, that second world war, you know, where the liberators, you know, coming, you know, coming as the force of good for, for everybody else. Yeah. Well, exactly.
0: I remember that very well. And one of the responses to 9-11, it was such a horrible thing to experience in real time. Everybody's glued to their television. There's a pit in your stomach. You don't know what is going on. There was so little, you know, we didn't know informationally what actually was happening while it was happening. Yeah. It was like, this could be how many more of these planes are coming? What is happening? We didn't know what was going to come next. That was the big, that people forget. Yeah. Like everyone thought there was more stuff coming. That's right. We were in just a complete state of shock. I mean, And to watch those towers fall in real time, you know, I, I personally was living in New York at the time but I happened to be out of town but my wife was in town and she was supposedly on a subway going to Pace University which if you know where that is it's in downtown New York so I but all the phone lines were out you didn't couldn't get a hold of some people and cell towers were down it was terrifying you could only watch in horror and just you know pray for your people you knew and but one of the things that happened you know in the aftermath of all of that it unified the country.
1: Yeah,
0: I'm, and I mean, people that want to forget this, but the Manhattan intelligentsia even were on board for a massive response. Right when we began to get a build up towards a war footing, yeah. uh, first with Afghanistan and then with Iraq, everybody was. I'm, you know, David Remnick of the New Yorker, right? The New York Times. Everybody was on board for this. There was. You talk about the pump being primed. I mean, nobody was. Very few people. We're hitting the brakes on listen, this. Listen, man,
1: if you're an adversary of the United States, you do not want to piss off the Manhattan intelligentsia. That's when you... <laughs> <laughs> well, the media really was... No, I, I remember everybody was Everybody was lined up. And, yeah. you know, by the way, like with cause, it was horrible. It was horrible. It, it yeah. was horrible. I mean, I, I I sometimes feel like there's this... Uh, I don't know. I'll hear these notes sometimes, these sort of revisionists, like, you know, we never should have gone into Afghanistan. And I'm like... Where were you? You know, i mean, yeah. like, like, I mean, come on. It's, I, I I'm all about going, back, you know, going back and looking at decisions that were wrong, and there are plenty of decisions and and uh, and detours that we took along the way in these 20 years of war. But the idea that like after 9/11 we were, there wasn't going to be some type of military response to Al Qaeda, I mean, it's just, I think, kind of is is foolish.
0: No, there was no question about it, and everybody wanted it, and everybody was waiting for it. I mean. Yeah. Even if even if you disliked Rudolph Giuliani as mayor, even if you disliked George W. Bush, you were, you know, at least temporarily completely
1: on their side. Sure. Right. And the thing that's been a really interesting, Joe, is I've been I don't know about you, but like recently and I'm sorry if this is getting ahead of ourselves, but I mean, really since kind of the, the dialogue, I don't know, you know, you know. Trump or even pre-Trump, I mean, just our, our, our national conversation has not been great for a long time. And I have had over many years, a conversation that kind of goes something like this, which is, Hey man, do you think, or, you know, at a party, like, what if there was like another nine 11 attack now you think the country could get itself together and we could all unite in that way again, even just for a little while. And I feel like we've sort of finally got that in the pandemic. Like we really got the, the crisis we deserved. And then, you know, it's led to to what I think is probably the most divisive year, uh, at least since the 1960s, if not, you know, since the Civil War. So that, to me, is what has been recently so depressing. Because it was always, I felt, as things got bad in this country and got more and more pessimistic, I was like, well, if the crisis ever came, you know, maybe we could pull ourselves out of this malaise and come together again. And then the crisis came and we couldn't do it.
0: Yeah, that's remarkable. And a lot of that had to do, I think, the shift— you know, obviously, our politics became more intensely polarized mm-hmm. in the last twenty years, and you could kind of mark it as it goes. But it certainly began during the Bush years. Mm-hmm. There was an intensity around the politicization of the war, but and there was it, it, there was less media at the time, and there was it was at least for me my first experience of government propaganda. Mm-hmm. You know, there was. Uh, the Bush administration made a very strong push to, you know, bend reality its way. Uh, of course, we know about, you know, the weapons of mass destruction and, yeah. you know, the the kind of diverting the war to Iraq. Um, but even, you know, cases like the Pat Tillman, right? Pat yeah. Tillman, um, who was an Arizona Cardinals NFL football player, he and his brother joined the Army, I believe, in 2002, yeah. you know, to go fight this war because there was a sense that— uh, you know, again, the World War II metaphors were at first, those were the metaphors. Later,
1: it was the Vietnam metaphors. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Pat Tillman. Um, I was not thinking of him, but I think he he and his brother are a great or are, are in so many ways emblematic of what where the country was. Um yeah, I think what they did was like it was noble. I mean, he turned his back on a very promising NFL career, going okay. to in the army. There's a there's a tradition of athletes doing that. He was following that tradition, and then he was in Afghanistan, was killed in a friendly fire incident. And actually, General McChrystal was involved in this when he was a more junior general officer. And there was a cover up, and they gave Pat Tillman a you know a Silver Star, and there was this massive cover up. There's a remarkable documentary about the Tillman case, and they have footage of his funeral. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Joe, but they have like uh, John McCain speaks, Maria Shriver speaks. I think at one point, you know, she says, you know, Pat is home now. He's back with his God, something like that. And his brother jumps up on the stage, not the one who who enlisted in the army with him, but with his youngest brother. And he's drinking a pint of Guinness and he kind of toasts a photo of Pat Tillman, takes a sip of the Guinness and he goes, Pat always was given gifts. And he looks out in the crowd and he says, you know, there are a lot of people out here Saying a lot of things about my brother, and I appreciate that y'all have shown up. But Pat didn't believe in God, and Pat, Pat, he's just fucking dead. Yeah, when he gets off the stage, and I Holy mean, it shit. is just—if if you're listening, I would encourage you to go look at it. It's a—it's amazing. It's just an amazing thing to watch to show those divergent realities, and it so captures, I think, one of these moments where you see the country start coming apart a little bit at the seams. Radhika
0: Jones, editor in chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. And you know that, you know, we all famously remember... Similarly, this divergent you know, realities thing uh, with um, Bush landing on the aircraft carrier and saying mission accomplished, of course, this becomes like the most famous moment in which people are like, wait a second, mm-hmm. you're trying to sell us one thing, and then there's another reality over here. Uh, you know, I remember even the Bush administration had set up a series of news feeds out of Iraq and Afghanistan to hit the local TV markets to subvert the national media's narrative so there was like a constant battle between two realities here and it was right as the real, as the media was exploding in new ways and the internet was becoming much more fertile with you know information and misinformation and different
1: ways of getting information sure. um yeah, I remember being in Iraq, Joe, in two thousand four, and we were and we were fighting. And we actually, I came home in early two thousand five, and we fought in Fallujah. And the cover of I think it was either Newsweek or Time magazine, it just had sort of a silhouette of like an insurgent and a question mark, and said, "Who are they?" And we really didn't have a consciousness, even the military. Like, are these guys, you know, Saddam loyalists, Baathist hardliners? Are they, uh, you know, we didn't really Al Qaeda in Iraq. Like, wasn't even, we didn't even know what that was. And there was just this sense of, you know, we don't know who these folks are. I remember one of the first patrols I went out on in Iraq. I mean, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I'll tell it to you. We walked around and we're like, all right, what do we do? Well, we've heard there's some insurgent activity here. So we were sort of going through this village, kind of talking to people. And we were saying, like, in our broken Arabic, like, where are the Mujahideen? Have the Mujahideen been here? Where are the Mujahideen? And our interpreter finally stops us and is like, hey, guys, like, don't call them Mujahideen you should call them Irhabin, which Irhabin means like bandits. Don't call them Mujahideen. Mujahideen means holy warriors. They're like, they're like, that's like you yeah. like going through Lexington and Concord in 1776 being like, where are the patriots? We're going to round up all the patriots. You know, you're like, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. credit. So there was just a little lack of literacy in those early days as to what we were doing. Yeah.
0: Well, just to alert our, our listeners that you've written um, a really riveting memoir, Places and Names on War, Revolution, and Returning. This is your nonfiction account of your war experiences, including uh, things that happened in Fallujah, which are, you know, unforgettable and wrenching to to read about, and of course you experienced them. But um, I'm just curious that, you know, we talk about this divergence of what was, what, was, uh, what we were believed we were doing and what was it we were actually doing and what was real and what was not. I just, you know, when you went in, you went in to join the Marines, in part because you were a believer in something, right? You believed that what you saw required a response, in a personal response. Is that is that why you,
1: you joined? Well, I actually you no, know, I actually went into I did ROTC in college, so I signed up in 1998, and ah. and so I knew I was going in the Marines, but I wasn't on active duty, so I kind of thought I was going to be going to a peacetime Marine Corps. Then obviously I went into a, a wartime Marine Corps, but even so it never changed my motivations for going into the Marines and when I you and, know and why I served there. Um, and I think it might be, you know, for many, and I'm not, I don't, you know, I don't purport to speak for everyone, but I think for many Marines and many people who serve, they serve almost not for a political, any type of political cause. They serve because they feel like service is something they want to do, that it's like important. It aligns with their, their morality you know that they feel like this is something in my life i want to have known that i did um so like if you were to have come up to like any of the marines in my platoon in fallujah or on the special operations team i was in, in in afghanistan so like why are you here and if they were being honest with you you know they wouldn't have said to like create a free and stable iraq or you know or to support the afghan government they'd say you know probably say like well you know i'm here because i always wanted to join the marine corps and you know i love this job i got lots of responsibility it's you know it's exciting um And those are kind of all the reasons I think people typically, you know, soldier, to use that as a verb, and have always done so in many respects. So on the ground that actually it looks much less political than it does when you're when you step away from it. And something I always have to sort of guard myself from is that when I'm remembering these events and trying to make sense of them, or even trying to make sense now that I that I don't lose sight of uh, how the experience itself was sort of. In many respects, strangely apolitical.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was well. I was going to ask you about that because, as we know, you know the the war footing began in Afghanistan and then moved to Iraq. Yeah. And the cause then became nation building. Mm-hmm. You know, there were the neoconservatives and, and and George W. Bush sold. Them, well, they sold us two things: one that we're going in there for idealistic purposes, but oh by the by. Uh, you know, Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction, he's been trying to get uranium from Africa and these things. And then it came out uh, that maybe this wasn't true, mm-hmm. uh, Hans Blix, as yeah. we recall, there's a name that nobody yeah. talks about anymore, but he, he came out and said, this, is, this isn't uh, necessarily true, we didn't see any evidence of this, and maybe the whole thing was, we were sold a bill of goods and everybody became implicated in that from Hillary Clinton. All the way to the, you know, Dick Cheney, it's the everybody was on for it until they were against it. So I just wondering, as as a soldier, you you know, everybody was apolitical, but they're also there because some may feel a sense of purpose in what they were doing. Uh, Did any of these things? bleed over into into your thinking about what was happening when you began to see maybe we're not here for the right reasons or our, our mission has changed
1: i can i can only speak for myself if i were to really summarize like my views of why i was there it, it, it probably just comes down to this fact that like i was you know i'm a young man i'm of a certain age and my generation has a war and i want to know that i actually fought in the that i fought in the war like right. if, if this were 1966 and it had been vietnam as messed up politically and as backward as vietnam was i probably would have been like hey i'm an american i'm 23 years old mm-hmm. vietnam's going on i feel like i'm supposed to be in vietnam and mm-hmm. and i and i totally recognize that might sound very foreign to many people um but that was very much driving kind of at the at the really fundamental levels why i was there and i think for many of the, the folks I served alongside, there, there was a degree of that. Now that being said, you know, you're not totally you're not oblivious to the politics of what's going on, and they, they certainly impact you and you're paying attention. I mean, I, so I say one of the things I kind of laugh about is every war I showed up to, I showed up late, and then when the war was kind of over, I realized I was there actually very early. So like when I showed up to Iraq in 2004 the vibe was sort of like, oh, like the war's over. The war was the invasion in 2003. And actually guys I served with who'd been in the invasion when we were in Iraq in 2004 would say things like, well, yeah, you know, like back in the war. And it's, you know, yeah. like what the hell is this, like we're getting shot at. Like, um, wow. And I showed up to Afghanistan for the first time in 2008. I mean, at that point, the war in Afghanistan had been going on for seven years. How can you show up in the seventh year of the war and realize it's really early in the war? But now sitting here in 2021, I can tell you when you look at the scope of the Afghan war, actually 2008 was pretty early days uh, when you're talking about the resurgent Taliban because Bush comes, you know, we invade in 2001. Things are actually going really well in Afghanistan. One of the huge strategic blunders Bush makes is Iraq and thinking like things are under control in Afghanistan. We can pivot to Iraq. And that creates the space for the Taliban to reassert themselves. And by 2005, 2006, you have a reemergent Taliban insurgency. And by the time I show up there in 2008, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's really starting to cook. And then you have, and then so much so that Obama, uh, you know, runs on, you know, this campaign that, you know, Iraq's the bad war, I'm going to end it, Afghanistan's a good war, and I'm going to surge. And we doubled down in Afghanistan, which I think was, you know, in, in ways that I think were really, really foolish, you know, and specifically when he gives the speech in 2009 announcing his surge in Afghanistan and the exact same speech, he announced the withdrawal date. And I was in Afghanistan when that happened. And I can tell you, like, it made for many awkward conversations with village elders who you're convincing that, you know, our partnership is enduring. Don't worry, we won't abandon you. When on TV, the president has just said, you know, we'll be out of here in a handful. Of, you know, this is the day we're going to leave. Because um, they would say to you, well, there's a Taliban shadow governor down the road and he's not going to be gone in 2014. Yeah.
0: You, uh, you mentioned recently in an interview I saw, I believe it was on CBS, and you talked about some the gallows humor around uh, you know, Marines and other soldiers. It was a knock-knock joke. Knock-knock, yeah, knock. Yeah. who's there? Yeah.
1: Yeah, as the joke goes, knock-knock. Who's there? 9-11.
0: 9-11 who? I thought you said you'd never forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that, was that a, is dark.
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, it, you know, it's a joke that would, you know, in 2011 and 12 and 13, that's a joke that was making definitely making the rounds. I mean, a number joke that's always stuck with me was before the midterms in 2018, and I think 2018 is a good moment because after that we do start talking about Afghanistan a bit because Trump's talking about it, and um, but in 2018 before the midterm elections, Rasmussen put a poll out in the field, and 42 percent of Americans. Couldn't even say whether or not the war in Afghanistan was still going on. Like, they just didn't know. Um, yeah, amazing. Oh, so, you know, that's, that's, that's a forgotten war at that point. Yeah. The meaning of it
0: all is now something that we're all grappling with. Yeah. I mean, you think about 2,996 people died on 9-11. At the time, and in reality, it's an extraordinary number, and it's um, unimaginable, and then the loss— For people here in the New York area where I live, it was just, I'll just say that in the days and weeks and months after, I mean, it was a continual, just like emotional response. It was bursting into tears reading the New York Times. It was every day was just like a sense of incredible tragedy uh, that was very close to home. 20 years later, tens of thousands of people. People have died in Iraq and Afghanistan. Thousands of people, of tens of soldiers, of U.S. soldiers have died. The, you know, the twenty-year aftermath of nine eleven is far exceeds in death and misery what happened on nine eleven. And so the sum total of it, we have to take in as one, kind of cascade. And um, I wonder. I'm thinking now. We just exited. I know you've been very critical of the Biden administration on the way they did this. It was you know, in the incompetence, the the horror of it, really, and watching it all collapse so precipitously. And I know while you were in it, you weren't thinking politically. But in the years since, you've become a journalist, you're a novelist, you've processed it, I know you have political views. Mm-hmm. Um, has this exit from Afghanistan and the way it's done and how it's happened, I, I've read, I think I read that you've, in your writing as well, that it's a struggle for people who served to think about what the meaning of all this is now after having watched friends die after having suffered themselves loss of limbs psychological distress and all the things we know and i'm sure it's complicated but can you talk about a minute uh, about how you're, you you sure. personally see the value of what we have what we did over the last 20 years given how it ended
1: yeah well let me me all like start specific and i'll get general if you'll allow me that the, sure. So I've been very, I, I'm very critical of the Biden administration right now, just because I think the way they've handled this withdrawal has been just a total, it's been a, the, the how we've handled the withdrawal has been a breakdown of our morality as a country and what we purport to be our national morals and our competence as a country. And so to see both happening in tandem is, is painful, um, you know, I've got a cell phone and I'm not the only vet or journalist or activist who's worked in Afghanistan, who has, is having this experience and has had it very acutely the past month or so filled with phone calls, emails, text messages of Afghans. We know, you know, Afghans who've really committed themselves to trying to make their country, not Talibanistan, who we've just completely abandoned and just said, sorry, guys, you're on your own. We can't deal with this anymore. And there's a real cynicism around that decision that's just, it's just, it's tough to swallow. And as a veteran, there's a real bitterness to see that this war has kind of the cleanup has fallen on all of us. Like, why is my phone filled with these messages? Why don't these people have folks in our, at our state department who can help them? Cause they don't, that's why they're calling people like me. Um, and so if you say you care about veterans, Take care of this mess, because I assure you, it's psychologically very difficult to be getting panicked voicemails from people begging you for help, and you know you can't help them. So I think that is sort of specific. Um, This could have been handled with a whole lot more competence and a whole lot more empathy um, by this administration. And I'm particularly critical of them because their value proposition in so many ways were those two specific things, competence and empathy. Um, Now let's zoom out a minute. So if we zoom out, like I never agreed with the decision to just pull out wholesale from Afghanistan. I've always been of a view. If you look at America's wars, you know, when we, the only time all of the troops come home from a war is actually when we lose the war. When we win the war, troops stay, we secure peace. At a reasonable cost in blood and treasure, and I feel like if you look at where Afghanistan was before Trump sort of showed up and kind of said we got to bring everybody home, um, we were actually on a very good trajectory to have Afghanistan in that type of a place. Um, the war was still going to be going on there. The, the Afghans were already, by and large, fighting it, and you can look at models like a place like Colombia, for instance, where we fought a war for three decades against the FARC, and that actually had a good outcome. Uh, both Colombia and Afghanistan are narco states, but that being said reasonable people can disagree on matters of policy the administration says we're pulling everybody out I think what the administration gambled on was this idea that there would be a decent interval that the last US troops would come out on 9/11 we would have that the president would have that moment he could say I, I ended the war and anywhere between you know six months to two years later that's when you might see the Ghani government collapse and that tracks historically you know Vietnam the last. US troops pull out in 72. Saigon falls in seventy five. The Russians pull out in eighty nine. Uh, you know, Najibullah is killed in nineteen ninety four. I mean, you know, so you have decent intervals there. No one in the administration, no one, they didn't think it would be eleven days, and so they made a bet and they lost. And I think they also believe that in their decent interval, that would be the moment where they could start kind of getting the folks out gradually who they wanted to get out but they lost and they got to own that loss. And it was a massive miscalculation. And there were a lot of people warning saying like Af- this, you know, Afghanistan is not going to treat you gently on your way out the door. Unlike, you know, the ministry said that you're not going to see Saigon. And I've always been like, you wish this was Saigon, you know, Vietnam had hundreds of miles of coastline. This is Afghanistan. This is a landlocked country. And, you know, f- you know, go, go look at like the Anglo British wars, like the Afghans like to kick you on your ass on, on the way out the door. So, um, So then we kind of go out from the withdrawal to like the larger meaning of the wars. Listen, Joe, I I do think because we're talking about September 11th, if you were to have told me on September 12th that in 20 years, the next largest attack, terrorist attack on U.S. soil would kill 49 people as opposed to nearly the 3,000 we lost on 9-11. And that would be the biggest one by far in the next 20 years. I think I'd say, wow, that's pretty impressive that we're able to pull that off. So I don't think we should be so pessimistic and down on our, on our efforts to not actually recognize that for 20 years, basically, we were able to secure the homeland. Um, and that and we secured the homeland with many people out there who wanted to do us harm. Um, so that's not for nothing. Now, the question is, could we have done it at a at more of a bargain? Do we need to take like the Iraq detour? You know, do we need to go try to rebuild Afghanistan in our air image? no and i think they're compelling arguments that we didn't need to do any of those things and i think we need to take a hard look at the opportunity cost of doing all that right now like particularly as it relates to our position with our you know peer level adversaries countries like china russia the iranians so then like to go even bigger than that and maybe more (laughs) metaphysical what does it all mean you know like what does war mean like i happen to believe um And because I, you know, I write fiction and I am friends with people who write fiction about war and, you know, and think about war and how it manifests in art. You know, there's this idea of, you know, making anti-war art. Um, You know, how do you tell an anti-war story? I think, you know, being anti-war is like being anti-hurricane, right? One is a force of nature that destroys the other is a force of human nature that destroys. I don't think you can undermine our propensity as human beings to create war. So I think kind of the only thing, the only, the only way I feel that I make meaning of these experiences is not to like tell war stories and try to tell anti-war stories. It's kind of more actually, I think the better verb is like to show war stories, like to try to show people what war is. So at least we understand it. And when the next you know, drum is beating and people are getting ready to go to the next thing, there is this sort of body of work that you can look back on, whether it's in films or books or whatever and say, okay, great. This is what it looked like the last time we did it. So just take warning.
0: I want to talk about that a minute because, um, you know... There was a body of work before. Yeah. It was about Vietnam.
1: Yeah.
0: And, um, you know, you wrote in the Washington Post recently, and I just want to read this because it's an interesting thing. You talked about being around Vietnam vets when you were yourself in the Marines and talking to them and, and them being taking some pity on you, right, uh, in your enthusiasm <laughs> to some degree. Let me just read what you wrote. Um, the skepticism I often encountered in their eyes or the edge I detected when I talked about our respective experiences wasn't disillusionment. It was pity for me. They knew my war hadn't ended. They knew what was coming, betrayal of our allies, of our values, of every American who was asked by this country to make promises to the Afghans only to have our political leaders break them. And just, I wanted to add, you know, I grew up as a Gen Xer reading the literature of Vietnam, the things they carried, you know, the... um, the numbers go on and on, but I was myself obsessed with reading these books and the best and the brightest and learning about it. We we had every lesson imaginable set before us, right? And yet, once again, we became this became like Vietnam times ten. I mean, you know, it was like uh, much longer. It was um, in many ways more globally destructive. Um, so, tell me a little bit about that. The idea of that an ending will may change the way you even view war. F- you know, after, now that it's over.
1: Well, so, then, uh, yeah, and that piece, kind of what I what I mentioned is, like, I've always felt, you know, I have a lot of respect for the Vietnam guys, because they're my elders, so going into the Marines, the books I was reading, yeah, were like Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carry, Jim Webb's Fields of Fire, you know, later books like Carl Marlantes's Matterhorn, like, you know, th- there's a whole canon of, of literature, and film, Platoon, Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket, like, I was very fluent in all of that, and, and remain so, and I always felt like, well, the V and I got to, you know, I, I know O'Brien. I got to know some of these guys and they're great guys, uh, but I always felt with them a little bit like, you know, they kind of look at my generation like we're crazy. Because we keep volunteering to go back. And I think they're suspicious of us maybe a little bit. And, you know, and I look at them and I always, always felt a little bit like, you know, these guys, like they're so disillusioned. Like maybe they're so disillusioned because they grew up in the 50s and the sense of illusion was that much greater. You know, and I'm a child of like right. the 80s and 90s and it's different. And in that piece in the post, I just sort of, yeah, I, I learned something this summer. And I was like, no, it's not that those guys like were skeptical of us. It's sort of they had, they had, they had learned the last lesson. And even though my war is 20 years long, I hadn't learned the last lesson. And the last lesson I watched this summer, and it is a bitter, bitter lesson to see that. uh, And to see the country just sort of turn its back on a lot of people who they might not be Americans, but they wagered their entire lives on our values. And when we told them we would help them, they believed us. So to your point, Joe, what do we learn about that? You know, yes, we had all those books before we went to Iraq and Afghanistan. I think Iraq and Afghanistan are very different wars than Vietnam. I just think in the greatest way, obviously, there's a draft in Vietnam. You know, we lost uh, 58,000 American dead in Vietnam, and we have lost about a tenth of that in Iraq and Afghanistan over a much longer period, too. So it's touched the country very differently. But that being said, I think, you know, it, it sort of goes back to where I land at my most macro point, like war is part of human nature. I don't think any of these books are ever going to stop a war. I think they're just going to, maybe you have people who are informed. You know, I was very glad and very grateful that I had read those books before I went to the Marines because it, it, it made me more prepared. And I think maybe at the end of the day, all you can be is prepared and hopefully clear eyed. Uh, and maybe you do avoid some wars that way, but I don't think you're going to avoid all of them.
0: Well, I remember in the wake of 9 11, on the margins, ...were some anti-war voices, and they were shouted down. Yeah. They were shouted down, you know, and and some people said, hey, maybe we should look at the history of our presence in the Middle East and how some of this might be a fallout from geopolitical Mm -hmm. malfeasance on our part, and they were shouted down, right? And instead, there was this, you know, national furor, the kind that we discussed earlier, which was, you know, we talk about national unity, but it was national unity in the service of, you know, something that was going to almost have a life of its own, you know? And um, we published a piece in the Vanity Fair this week by Eric Lutz, okay? It's just a small little essay, really. But it talks about how 9-11, he pinpoints it, and I don't know if I agree with this, but we can talk about it, as like the kind of inflection point after which American culture changes Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, spiraling out or at least along the timeline, our politics become more divisive. You you mentioned the pandemic, even during the pandemic, we were unable to unify again. And uh, we are in this piece that Eric Lutz wrote is quite pessimistic. And a lot of people are pessimistic right now. I mean, just to bring it right into the moment, we're 20 years out from nine 11, there's a whole generation that doesn't even remember it, which is kind of hard to believe. Um, and for whom the end of Afghanistan is, is abstract, right? And for whom uh, looking at what's going on with the Afghans is is, is um, kind of abstract also. Like, they, you know, yes, I I feel for them as human beings, and I can watch them on videos, and I know that they're human beings, and I want them to not suffer like this. But even 20 years ago, it was the Taliban mm-hmm. uh, who were, you know. So in any case, the, the point is, is that I wonder if— Uh, now that you've seen the end of this war and the bitter pill of it Mm -hmm. um, and looking where we are now, do you find, where do you find optimism? Where do you look in all of this and find any kind of like, I mean, yes, we can make art of that out of it, but that's not not necessarily like a actionable lesson we can take from it. But like, you know, what, where do you see hope right now?
1: Um, I think that we as Americans are, you know, a, a good and noble people. I really believe that. I believe that like the ideals of this country, the enlightenment ideals on which this country was founded are good and noble ideals. I think that we as a country sometimes struggle with the extremes of our temperament. And I think like, for instance, right after 9-11 was a moment where coming out of the Cold War, we believed in ourselves probably too much and got ourselves in trouble we believe that we could march into any country on the earth and they would greet us as liberators and that was our that was literally our strategy in iraq we're just going to be greeted as liberators this is going to be like i remember 1944 uh and you know and it wasn't so but on the other side of the spectrum is a moment like now where we seem just so unable to believe in ourselves and so captive to, in some ways, just subjectivity that like the idea that like, well, you know, the Taliban are really bad, but like, you know, we've been pretty bad too. No, like, sorry. eh, We are not the Taliban. I love you. We're not perfect, but we are not the Taliban. Those guys are Nazis, you know, and we can't just roll over on our values. I mean, so listen, like America is a place of ideals and they, and by definition, by being ideals, they're like a mark on the wall. And you're always going to be leaping, trying to, to slap that mark on the wall. And most of the time, you're not going to get there. But the fact that you're striving for it is what matters. And like, so what, what am I am hopeful? I'm, I'm hopeful anytime I feel and see us striving imperfectly to be better and to live out our ideals. And we're never going to do it perfectly. We always do it imperfectly. But as long as we're striving, that's great. And so I just, I, I hope that we can. Pick ourselves up off the floor a little bit. I do hope if anything good comes out of what happened in Afghanistan this summer, it's that we are reminded how much we don't like seeing this, how much this is not actually who we are. And if we can, if maybe if we can all agree that this is not who we are, it allows us to start to slowly agree a little bit more on who we, in fact, are. So maybe that's where I find hope. I find hope that I don't see anyone looking at what happened in Afghanistan over the last month and saying, oh, that's great. That went off really well. I think everyone's agreed this wasn't good. This isn't who we are. We don't ever want to see this again. And maybe that's just like a little toehold to start climbing out of this kind of pit of cynicism that we've been in for a while, because I think we have been and, uh, uh, you know, we can do better.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, just... Um I take my hope where I can get it. And, you know, I saw just a video in the last 24 hours of like women in Afghanistan protesting yeah. uh, against the Taliban and, you know, endangering themselves. Yeah. Soldiers pushing them around with guns and threatening them, and yet they still marched on. And we, they are not citizens of our country, and yet we implanted something there, right? There are ideals that are that these the generation that lived under a us sort of protected government for 20 years had new ideas yeah. and new things implanted and we don't know where that'll go and we hope that it won't be repressed and and violently boxed up and you know chances are some of it will but But then we're going to, like you said, we have to reflect on that, how we did this and and how we, our decision to abandon it, you know, because out of, uh, Trump was popular because of this isolationist idea. Mm -hmm. There were tons of people that wanted out of there, right? They didn't want to see us. They wanted us, but it was part, it wasn't really thinking about the consequences of it. It was thinking about our own selfish needs and our desire to just lock up the gates around the country and live in some sort of like, um, you know, bubble Uh, With our flags waving in the air so that we never have to look outside. Right. But I think one thing we have learned is that that's not possible. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not possible for us to relinquish moral, you know, responsibility and then just close our eyes. You know, it's still going to be there because the world's interconnected
1: absolutely i mean and i i agree i've seen you know those images of of afghan women uh protesting and uh you know and many you know and men and women holding banners that say indari freedom and walking down the street against the taliban and listen like you know the the ideals that this country is fundamentally about and were founded on these kind of classic you know small l liberal enlightenment ideals like they're not owned by the United States. Like they are human ideals and they Mm. exist everywhere and you can see them everywhere. And so when I see things like that, to me, in some ways, it's like the greatest reminder of what this country has been, you know, can and should be at its best. And, um, and listen, I believe we can get back there. I believe we do have some headwinds that we're battling. And we've talked a lot about nine 11. I think our, you know, our culture, um, and uh our technology have conspired over the last 20 years I mean, the world is like radically different i'm sure on 9 11 you know on 9 11 when i was running to call and get in touch with the people i loved i was doing it on a payphone with a handful of quarters so like the, you right. know the world has changed a lot and how we communicate and interact with one another and i remember i was checking cnn every few hours on a dial-up modem in a common computer lab so, um, mm-hmm. so i think the way you know the That has contributed a lot to the rancor in our society as well, uh, or at least as much as any terrorist attacks have. So we got to figure our way out of this moment. I mean, listen, we we have done it before, um, but nothing guarantees that we'll do it again.
0: Yeah. Well, we're day by day attempting to adapt to a version of a kind of war that we're all waging, which is to understand the world and get real information. Yeah. I mean, we're now battling almost a virus of misinformation as well as actual virus, right? Mm-hmm. And we have a whole uh, problems right here domestically just sort of cohering, right, yeah. uh, as a country. And to have those Enlightenment ideals even accepted as a kind of baseline uh, yeah. belief. Yeah, not everybody, you know? not
1: everybody does. I'm very much aware of that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but as we, you know, turn towards the future, just thinking about the future, you've got a new book out this summer, 2034, and you re- co-wrote it uh, with Admiral James uh, Stavridis, Yeah. and it's thinking about uh, future uh, you know, dystopian scenarios. But instead, instead of concentrating on today's dystopian scenarios, we can focus on future ones, and uh, it's about sort of a kind of conflagration between us and China. And of course, everybody's talking now about that's the next stage of the world's foreign policy, uh, complexities and, uh, cyber uh, attacks and disinformation. Tell me like, uh, you know, this book is fiction, right? But it is sort of based on two very bright people's idea of what could happen yeah. uh, in the future. And, you know, we talk about 9-11, what's not forget, it's never going to happen again. Well, what is the next version of that could be anything. And, uh, Tell us what, you know, and, and by the way, I want to draw into this just that, you know, Joe Biden has also um, mentioned that we are now pivoting towards other foreign policy issues, namely China. Yeah. Right. Um, has How long has this been on your mind?
1: Well, you know, what's interesting is um, Jim and I probably we really started writing this book in earnest in 2018 or maybe 2019 or late 2018, early 2019. And I think one of the horrible things is when you're, you know, when you're writing a work of dystopian fiction and events start catching up with your narrative, you know, as an author, you're like, all right, I got it, you know, I got, I got to correct, you know what I mean? And then, but as a as a human being, you're like, oh god, this isn't good. So I think the world has like actually changed quite a bit in terms of the 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 focus that we're seeing on China because we really wrote most of this book before the pandemic, and that has obviously made brought china much more into people's awareness and the way that we are interconnected you know the book really it imagines a, a war that starts between the united states and china that's fought mostly at sea and it also has a very high heavy kind of cyber component to it you know that being said like it's not a real door stopper of a book it's actually kind of i think it moves pretty quickly it's it's character driven but it tries to ima- it's a thriller yeah it's a thriller it tries to imagine like the cycle of escalation that would result, you know. How do we get to a world war? How would we get to a world war with China? You know, what would be like the the Guns of August scenario that would lead us kind of spiraling into that type of a conflict? Um, and so we lay it out in that in the titular year twenty thirty four. Uh, and you see it from you know the American point of view, the Chinese point of view, Iranian Russians. There's you know a variety of characters who uh, who feature in the narrative.
0: Yeah, maybe if you describe it in a novel. It'll never happen because it'll be just too much of a coincidence.
1: Well, it's interesting you said the spirit of the book is very much like we were kind of looking at this, you know, the cultural space, like literature, film, and, you know, we're kind of Gen X millennial guys. You know, I remember there was this very, growing up, this very rich Cold War literature, films. You know, books like On the Beach, Dr. Strangelove, Red Dawn, maybe a little different. And, you know, even like you know (laughs) the Rocky and the Rambo movies where there was always like a Soviet bad guy. Um, We don't have that today. And I think it actually, that literature served a great purpose because, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union could agree upon nothing. But the one thing we could agree upon because we had so richly imagined it was that a third world war would be horrible, totally catastrophic and should be avoided at all costs. I think with our relationship with China, you know, it's been said by many that like we might, you know, if we're not in a cold war, we're certainly in the foothills of a cold war, but that same kind of like imagining of like, okay, well, what would this conflict look like and how cataclysmic would it be? Like it hasn't occurred uh, with much depth. And I think it's actually, it's a very worthwhile exercise because if you do that, you know, then you actually, you know, come to the conclusion that we cannot enter into this conflict and you avoid it, hopefully.
0: Well, you know, I, would, I the reason I was thinking about it, exactly for the reasons you just mentioned, which is that, you know, one of the things that was shocking about 9-11 is we, our failure to ever imagine it.
1: Yeah.
0: And, of course, there were people that had were trying to ring the bell, but they were lonely voices on the margins. Yes. We were living in a dream world. Mm-hmm. And our literature and our filmography was about the Cold War. Yes. And it did not really account for this, you know, unthinkable thing and including the way that it was done and the people who were doing it. We, these completely, you know, who are these people? We asked ourselves, you know, like what, you know, this is how shocking it was when it happened. We were just living in a completely. So, I mean, there's a value to uh, trying to set the table of our imagination for things that might be.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the nine 11 commission report explicitly says in one of its conclusions that this entire attack was a f- massive failure of imagination. Like, just no one, no one thought this was something we needed to be prepared for. Um, and yeah. so, and if you and if you look, like, if we look at like the great sort of cataclysmic events in American history, so nine eleven, we just said, Pearl Harbor, similarly, was a failure of imagination, um, and this pandemic. Like, I'm not, like, there, there weren't a lot of people sitting around in you know November December of 2019 talking about the pandemic we were going to get hit with. Um, so right. that was similarly a massive failure of
0: imagination. Though there had been, a you know, a strong literature of like um, virus dystopian novels and, you know, films, uh, but they, you know, they seemed like they were, were, you know, science fiction, right? And so now science fiction has come.
1: It's just like, I wasn't worried about it. I wasn't like, uh, you know, if I'd been on your podcast, no, no I would have been talking about the pandemic.
0: No, nor was I. No. Now... Um, you know, the back to the question a moment ago that I, I talk about this Eric Lutz column, and I, I've been thinking a lot about it in terms of can you pinpoint nine eleven as the kind of the moment that the worm turns and America sort of goes on this, you know, like a pinball goes towards a bad place that it is in today, and that the polarized politics and everything. And I think it's a little too simple, simplified. But I will say this, which is that there were all these seeds that were planted in advance you know, the 2000 election, the Monica Lewinsky thing, where the media was morphing in ways that were starting to build up. The internet was coming around and there was a whole conservative, Fox News was beginning to take Mm -hmm. hold. And 9-11 catalyzed a lot of things. Yeah. And I guess if I were to like, come up with my own unified theory, and I don't really like unified theories, Mm -hmm. like, you know, the world's much more Shakespearean and comet tragic than that. But, um, you know, 9-11 did kind of like send everybody to their corners in a new way. Yeah. And, um, you know, we we in the media business have always observed and noted that every election cycle, there's a new development in the media, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's so much focus goes on to one thing, right? Two people, you generally, right? Yeah. And... You know, the internet grows and new businesses evolve out of it, and it morphs in a new and dramatic way. Well, 9-11 was like that times 10, and lots of things grew out of it. Our information world exploded. And uh, when it regrouped, it regrouped in a very polarized way. And, the, you know, the, the, the 2004 election is the one that comes to mind mostly when he had Bush versus Kerry, and it was this idea of Vietnam versus Bush's idea of some kind of you know, a more of a World War II type, yeah. type narrative that we're doing, uh, you know, a great national deed here. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to make the Middle East, we're going to remake it in our own image. And, you know, they, there's that arrogance in that, but also the idealism. Yeah. And then Kerry was saying, no, we didn't, who's going to be the last man to die for a, a misbegotten war? Let's, yeah. you know, we got to end this and look at the direction we went. And a lot of that had to do with the way the media yeah. had reacted in and handled it right and Americans gave Bush a pass because they wanted to believe yeah and then we go to, to Obama and that was going to be the big reset button and you know um if I'm going to you know again broad stroke uh theories here um he didn't do well on the Afghanistan uh, decision as you as you mentioned but um by the time he comes around the media has become much more strident and steroidal and it uh, goes towards a new—there's a new reaction, and I frankly think it was a racist reaction more than it was anything, but mm-hmm. everybody has their opinion. But, um, you know, and then Trump comes along, and it's isolationism is the order of the day, and that's what he was selling. And in a way, I'm kind of—you uh, know, Biden has said that he was, you know, thrall or he was in—kind of tied to Trump's, you know, decision to get out. With the, you know with the agreements that he made with the Taliban, that his hand was forced. And I have never really figured out, maybe you can tell me, was it, you know, I mean, maybe you could look at the polling that said many, many most people wanted us out of there,
1: right? Yeah, I, I don't give Biden a pass on that. I'm sorry. Like, you know, Biden, he saw however, how many, I mean, I think it was two dozen executive orders he signed in the first 24 hours of his presidency, You know, he put us back in the Paris uh, climate, you know, in the climate accords. I mean, you know, he's the president of the United States. He can go tell the Taliban the deal is off. Um, So I just think he should own it. I mean, own it. I think it's a reasonable. listen. I think I don't And it's not a position I agree with. But I think leaving Afghanistan is a reasonable policy position. I don't agree with it, but I think it's reasonable. And I think if I were advising Biden right now, I'd be like, just, you know, you should own that stop with the blaming trump thing because it doesn't do you any favors and own it and just but admit that like the execution didn't go off as well as you wanted and there were certain assumptions we had that didn't come true and we're going to we're going to do right in the long run with our afghan allies and we're going to contain the taliban and we're going to you know play a very long game in terms of getting everybody out and putting pressure on the taliban and i think I think that's what the appropriate response is at this point. And I hope he, and I hope he starts to correct to that. Um, but I just, listen, I'm just like, to make people who are less than you, more powerful than you is never a good look. So, you know, Trump to say, you know, you can't do it because Trump, you know, was more powerful than you're like, come on, Trump doesn't have that power yep. over you. And to say the same thing about the Taliban, they don't have that power over you. Um, right. So I just think he should just, I just think he should own it. And I think he would do better, um, to own it. But I really, I, I, I agree with your observations about the media. And I think that, um, I think the, to listen, to, I think the huge change we've seen in the last 20 years in this country, um, there are many contributing factors, but I think of significant share is our media, how we consume media, the atomization of our culture, you know, everything as political as, you know, where we get our news from. To so things that are as seemingly non-political as how we watch movies, because now we all watch different movies. So we can't talk to each other about movies. And, you know, I mean, all of that, I think it all matters and just leads to sort of, uh, you know, headwinds when it comes to having kind of a common national conversation.
0: Yeah. Uh, with the exception that we all watch Ted Lasso. Yes. Everybody's watching Ted Lasso. Come on. Yeah doesn't matter what, what your politics it's are. You love Ted Lasso. It's, today's the
1: first day of school and my kids, uh, uh, head of school did like a video welcoming everyone to school dressed as Ted Lasso. So yes, that's clearly going on in the culture.
0: Brilliant. Well, there's a reason that that program spoke to so many people and it was like, it was for once, there's no darkness here. Yeah. You know, it's not even cynical humor. You know, it yeah. was like optimistic. And every, the fact that everybody loves it, and gravitated to it, and I, you know, my father is a, a Republican. He's not a full Trumpy Republican, but he loves it. It doesn't matter what political stripe you are. Everybody loves it. It's because there's some something they're seeking out of it. Yeah. And um, let me just close by saying something that you and I could talk about for one last few moments here. You're a father, mm-hmm. as am I, and I have kids, and they're too young to remember any of this, and it's all in the history books for, yeah. for them, right? But, you know, one things we can say as parents, I think, is that um, my head's in the media all day and you're writing columns, Mm -hmm. you know, for The Washington Post and The New York Times and Time magazine about Afghanistan. You're involved in sort of, you know, talking about veterans identity. You just gave a speech in Colorado you were talking about or spoke in a class. Um, And it's easy for us to lose perspective. Yeah. And to think this is the whole story. Right. Yeah. But the story is uh, right in front of us often. And, uh, you know, I know that uh, just my kids just went to school and came back and they're really psyched to be back at school, even if they're wearing masks because yeah. they're seeing their friends and they live in a world of incredible optimism. Yeah. And um, I put my hope in that, you know, um, because all, they'll be reading the literature of all of this and hopefully taking their own lessons from it. But they're the inheritors of this world, and despite all the darkness all around us, despite it, they just keep ticking. They keep moving into the future with a sense of faith. And uh, if it wasn't for them, I'm not sure I'd have it, you know, frankly. But
1: <laughs> I, I could—listen, I couldn't agree more. Um... I sort of said flippantly, Oh, I'm an optimist, but like, I'm an optimist because I have children. And you know, when you have, whether you have a sunny disposition or a dark disposition, if you have children, you have no choice, but to be an optimist, you have to be an optimist on their behalf. So, so I am. And, uh, and Oh, by the way too, like, I don't think we're actually doing that bad. I think this is a pretty great place to live. Um, I think we've got our challenges Um, but I would rather be living in America now than living in America in 1921 or in 1821. Um, so I just, I think, um, I think it's worth being self-critical, but not worth becoming too defeatist.
0: Right. And I'm glad you brought up those dates because one thing that did not exist in those dates was vaccines. Yes. And, uh, I love living in a world of vaccines. Right. Right. They've been a great help to me and the people I know, and we're happy that we have them.
1: Yes.
0: Um, well, Elliot, thank you for coming on Inside the Hive to talk about this. We chewed through a lot of stuff there. It's, it's a very solemn occasion uh, that we're at. We're never going to wrap it up on a neat boat th- just because it's 20 years. It's something we're going to be grappling with. The rest of our lives and thinking about the rest of our lives. And, and I think we should. I think we need to process this in our literature, in our personal lives, and, th- and even conversations like this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's been great being on, Jeff. Thank you.
0: And that's our podcast this week. I'd like to thank Elliot Ackerman for coming on the podcast and talking about this very potent and emotional subject with us. Thanks to our producer, Brett Fuchs thanks to the people at Cadence 13 who helped make this podcast happen. If you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe. Come back to us week after week. We're going to have more interviews, more conversations. Please support our sponsors the way they support this podcast, and we'll see you next week.